This is the 96th episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the original Houdini Seance. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode 96. A special welcome to the first episode for season six. I'm expecting some big milestones this season. For one, very soon, we're going to break 100 episodes. That is enormous. Also, sometime this season, we'll break the 50,000 download mark, which is also pretty big. Uh, But with any luck, what do you think? Maybe, uh, do you think we can double that? Maybe break 100,000 downloads? It, It means increasing the listeners, but I think it's doable. I've got a lot of uh, fun things in store for this season. Uh, I already know some of the upcoming episodes. Um, For example, I'll be covering The Great Nicola, John Booth, Ramesses, and uh, magician and magic dealer Frank Ducrow. Uh, Those are just a few of the folks for season six. There will be a lot more. And of course, Houdini will rear his head on occasion. Uh, Now is one of those occasions. Uh, Friends, a quick reminder that the Magic Detective t-shirt is on sale this month, uh, the month of October. You can show your support and at the same time help promote the show by getting a Magic Detective t-shirt. After you buy your t-shirt, by the way, please be sure to take a photo of you wearing the shirt and post it online. Uh, I've had some purchasers uh, that bought shirts but didn't put up pics. So uh, if you can post a picture on uh, the Facebook group page or on Instagram, that'll be awesome. Just use the hashtag Magic Detective or hashtag Magic Detective Podcast on your post. That'll be wonderful. To get your t-shirt, go to magichistorian.com. That's magichistorian.com. And you can order your t-shirts over there. So now for some news. The biggest news in magic that I can even think of just came down yesterday. David Copperfield announced he would be making the moon vanish in February of 2023. And I'll have more on that in the next podcast. But let me just say, uh, as a magic you know, not just a magician, but as a magic fan, we have been waiting for you to come back, uh, Mr. Copperfield. And I can't wait to see what you have in store. I know it's going to be very, very uh, exciting. On the uh, on the sad news, um, Darwin Ortiz passed away recently. He uh, was a big-time card magi- magician and gambling expert. I had seen Darwin perform in person a number of times, and um, and don't get me wrong, I I just for whatever reason I didn't connect to uh, to what he was doing. Um, I met him a couple times, and he was very nice, uh, but we for whatever reason we just didn't click. And then and then a few days ago. I watched a video of Darwin, and he was talking about some of his theories on magic. Um, and oh boy, I just realized I made a huge mistake. Um, his his analysis, his thoughts on magic theory and presentation were just brilliant. 
And, um, of course, I have his book, Strong Magic, but I read it so long ago that um, I guess I need to go back and re-examine what's, what's in there. Um, I, I'm feeling bad now that I didn't get to know him better because he lived in the D.C. area and I lived in the D.C. area. So uh, he really was a genius on many levels. Uh, rest in peace, Darwin Ortiz. And now... For today's feature. If I were to say to you, can you name a celebrity who had a premonition of his death? A celebrity who had set up a special code in case he died, and this code would be used to verify any message from beyond. Uh, this would basically authenticate it. Um, and then that celebrity died, and then the celebrity, well, you know, you know the whole story. Um, who am I speaking of? Now, if you just said Houdini, sit down, you lose. Okay, I get it, Houdini fits the bill, and he's actually the really the template for that sort of thing. But the person I'm referring to is not Houdini. His name is Johnny Horton. And he was a country music star, rockabilly star, back in the 1950s. He was very popular. You may have heard some of his music, some of his songs. He had a lot of novelty songs like Sink the Bismarck and The Battle of New Orleans and North to Alaska, which was used in a John Wayne movie of the same title. Um, his music is still available online. You can check it out on Spotify and, and Apple Music and places like that, but... Um, as it turns out, Johnny Horton kept having this recurring vision of his death. And it involved being killed by a drunk driver, and apparently fairly fairly soon from when he was having these premonitions. So he made an effort to say goodbye to his friends, and among them was a gentleman named Merle Kilgore. And he actually gave Merle his performing guitar. And at first, uh, Kilgore didn't want to accept the gift. But Horton explained that any day now, he was due to be killed. This is a strange thing to say. So Kilgore and Horton developed a code that he would use to let Kilgore know that a message from beyond was authentic and had gotten through. On November 5th, 1960, in Milano, Texas, Johnny Horton was killed in a head-on collision between his car and a truck whose driver was drunk. Now, that's not the end of the story. Merle Kilgore, several years later, was on a radio interview. Merle was a songwriter who was famous for the Johnny Cash tune, Ring of Fire. And the DJ had just finished playing that song, when a strange phone call came in. It was from a woman who was part of a, a group of, of psychic women. And apparently they had received a message for someone named Merle Kilgore. But at the time, they had no, no idea who it was. They had never heard of him. Now, having heard the name on the radio, they realized that, well, hey, we've got a message for him. And the message was, the drummer is a rummer, and he can't hold the beat. This, as it turned out, was the exact message that Johnny Horton 
and Merle Kilgore had agreed upon. Exactly. The message referred to musicians who showed up drunk to play gigs, and Johnny hated that. I found this story actually by accident on a website called whiskeyrift.com. And by the way, an interesting side note, Merle Kilgore's son, Stephen, is a magician. In fact, um, you can find him often over on Surplus Magic Talk on Facebook, and um, he builds some of the coolest props um, just from scratch. And uh, recently he was doing uh, a Seder head that... Um, it's kind of spellbinding just watching him uh, create this thing and carve it out. So anyway, I thought you'd enjoy that story because it sounds so much like the Houdini story. But now let's get into Houdini. We need to begin to recap the year of 1926. It was a busy year for Houdini. Earlier in the year, Houdini would testify before Congress in regards to an anti-fortune-telling bill. It was a kind of a roundabout way of stopping mediums in town. To read the transcript of the time, it's amazing to see that there were numerous members of Congress who had no idea who Houdini was. Also in 1926, Houdini would be contacted by the Scientific American Committee about further getting involved in the Marjorie case. Now, the year prior, Houdini had successfully exposed Marjorie, and the committee decided not to award her the prize for being legitimate. But the committee was divided, thus the further examination. Houdini would not be able to participate this time around. The big tour, the three-in-one tour with Houdini, was about to take off. This was a three-part program made up of magic, escapes, and his anti-spirit exposures. Houdini would continue with this show right up until his death. He died on Halloween Day, October 31st, 1926, at Grace Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Fast forward to 1928. It's February. Bess gets a message from Reverend Arthur Ford of the First Spiritualist Church of New York. Apparently Ford, while in a trance, received a message from Bess Houdini's mother-in-law, Mrs. Weiss. The message was rather long, but the emphasis was on a single word, forgive. And this moment is captured rather dramatically in the movie The Great Houdinis, starring Paul Michael Glazer and Sally Struthers. Here is that message. She is eager to say one word. She tells me that she is the mother of Harry Weiss, known as Houdini. And the, the Spirit said, For many years my son waited for one word which I was to send back. He never got it. He always said that if he could get that one word, he would believe. The code which he gave to his wife can come from none save himself. Yet the conditions which have developed in the family make it necessary for me to get my code word through first. If the family acts upon that, he will be free and able to speak for himself. This is the word, forgive. Capitalize that and put it in quotation marks. His wife knew the word and no one else in the world knew it. 
ask her if the word which I tried to get back all these years was not forgive. I have tried innumerable times to say it to him. Now that he is here with me, I am able to get it through. Tonight, I gave it to you, and Beatrice Houdini will declare the truth of it. Suffice to say, this is the first message that Bess received since her husband died that she gives any attention to. Apparently, there were many, many other messages from mediums, all of which she ignored because they didn't meet certain criteria set up between her and Harry. What on earth does it mean? Well, Bess would confess it was the one word that Harry, while he was alive, wanted to receive from his mother— This all involved a family issue. His brother Nathan's wife, Sadie, had left him and then turned around and married another brother, Leopold. This was scandalous to Houdini, and he never spoke, or at least he rarely spoke, to Leopold again. If his mother, while she was alive, had just told him to forgive his brother, then the situation would be different, but she died before any such message could be delivered. Harry and Leopold, from what I can tell, were fairly close prior to all of this. So now, Arthur Ford, the medium, comes up with this message from Houdini's mother. You want to get somebody's attention, this is certainly a great way to do it. He had Bess's full attention. Now, we take a slight detour thanks to the book Houdini, The Man Who Walks Through Walls by William Lindsay Gresham. We learn about a new character who is a, and I use this term loosely, a reporter from a New York tabloid known as the Evening Graphic. This was a daily paper that, according to Gresham, uh, he said, the graphic cared little about news. It made its own news. The reporter, her name was Rhea Jower, and she met Bess Houdini. Rhea had recently read the book, Uh, the Harold Kellogg book on Houdini, and came to the conclusion that no one could be as loving as this Houdini character appeared in the book. So after meeting Bess, she proposed a series that would run in the graphic under the title The Life and Loves of Houdini. And this was around December of 1928, and Bess sadly became ill and had to be hospitalized during this time. Rhea Jower was moving forward with the project and needed a photograph for the article in the series, but for whatever reason, the hospital wouldn't let a photographer in to see Bess, so Rhea came up with a plan. She had one of the evening graphics staff dress up like a medical specialist and visit Bess Houdini with the strict purpose of taking her photograph. The hospital allowed the specialist in, and when he got to the room, he set up his camera and flash pan and flash powder. And you have to remember, this is a fairly, um, photography was still fairly primitive at this time. And Big Mac, that's his name, um, was then to uh, take the photograph. But he was not really a photographer. In his attempt to take the photo, he must have used too much magnesium powder or flash powder. The resulting flash explosion set part of the room's Christmas tree on fire. Bess, Bess went ballistic, throwing him out and canceling the proposed article with Rhea Jower. And the book says Rhea Jower swore she would get even with Bess for washing on the story. Keep that in the back of your head for a bit. Back to Arthur Ford. 
Since the original message from Cecilia Weiss, Ford would continue to receive messages through his contact or his spirit control named Fletcher. This time, they were not speaking to Cecilia Weiss, but instead the so-called spirit of Houdini. The next revelation would be a single word, Rosabelle. Fletcher would complain that during the seances, it was hard sometimes to get these words through and sometimes difficult dealing with Ford because he drank a lot. In some future sessions, single words would come through that would later be revoked. One word in particular was now. Also words like come and write. So in other words, if you put those together, come right now, it seems to say something. But but Fletcher, the spirit control, said the words were incorrect and needed to be stricken. Slowly, other words came through that Fletcher was told were part of an agreed-upon code between Harry and Bess. The next three that came through, answer, pray, and tell. These would prove to be accurate. But what exactly does it mean? Unlike the words come right now, which actually say something, these words seem, they don't seem to make any sense. However, these new words were part of an elaborate code. This code was an old mind-reading code that Harry and Bess had used in their early days in show business. It wasn't invented by them, but it was one that they used. And the way it was delivered is not the way it was used in their act. But in this case, it was only used to preserve a special word that would only be revealed once all the letters came through. Now, while all this drama was going on, in April of 1928, Nino Pecorero came out of the woodwork and said he could reach Houdini from beyond. Now, Nino and Houdini had run-ins when Houdini was still alive, and now Nino had a chance to get even. Apparently, a seance was set up at Bess's home on Payson Avenue, but there were zero results from this seance. Sorry, Nino. January 5th, 1929, Arthur Ford claimed to have received the full message from Houdini and notification was sent to Bess. On January the 8th, 1929, a seance with Arthur Ford would take place in Bess's home. She couldn't get around very well due to a recent fall from the stairs several days before she was likely highly medicated. It was said she had a, her head was bandaged, but the seance went on anyway. Just after noon, Ford fell into a trance, and Fletcher began to speak. This man is coming now, he says. The same one who came the other night. He tells me to say, hello, best sweetheart. And he wants to repeat the message and finish it for you. The code, he said, is the one that you use to use in one of your secret mind-reading acts. He then says, Rosabelle, answer, tell. Pray, answer, look, tell. Answer, answer, tell. He wants you to tell him whether they are right or not. Yes, replied Mrs. Houdini. They are. He smiles and says, thank you. Now I can go on, continued Fletcher. He tells you to take a 
to take off your wedding ring and tell them what Rosabelle means. Drawing her left hand from under the covers, she took off the ring, holding it before her. She sang in a small voice, Rosabelle, sweet Rosabelle, I love you more than I can tell. Over me you cast a spell. I love you, my Rosabelle. He says, I thank you, darling. The first time I heard you sing, that was in our first show together years ago. Mrs. Houdini nodded her head. Then, said Fletcher, there is something he wants to tell that no one but his wife knows. He smiles now and shows me a picture and draws a curtain or something in this manner. That evidently was the clue for the unfoldment of the next part of the code, for Mrs. Houdini responded in French, Jetir, le rideau, comme ça. And now the nine words besides Rosabelle spell a word in our code. Then Fletcher, quoting Houdini word for word, explained the code, how each word or combination of words represented a letter. The message I want to send back to my wife is Rosabelle, believe. Is that right? asked Fletcher. Yes, answered Mrs. Houdini with great feeling. Fletcher, concluding, repeated that which was given to him. He says, tell the whole world that Harry Houdini still lives and will prove it a thousand times and more. He is pretty excited, he says. I was perfectly honest and sincere, though I resorted to tricks for the simple reason that I did not believe it true and no more than was justifiable. I am now sincere in sending this through in my desire to undo. Tell all those who lost faith because of my mistake to lay hold again of hope and to live with the knowledge that life is continuous. That is my message to the world through my wife and through this instrument. Following the seance prompted by Ford's people, Bess Houdini signed a statement that read, Regardless of any statements made to the contrary, I wish to declare that the message in its entirety and in the agreed-upon sequence given to me by Arthur Ford is the correct message prearranged between Houdini and myself. Newspapers all over the world ran with Houdini Returns! But the excitement was not to last for long. On January 10th, the evening graphic, remember them, had a headline which read, Houdini Hoax Exposed, Seance Prearranged by Medium and Widow. Houdini Message, Big Hoax. Ford admits he got secret code from Magician's Widow. The graphic today is in a position to expose one of the most monumental psychic hoaxes ever perpetrated on the American public. The purported communication from the spirit world of Harry Houdini to his widow Beatrice. Evidence gathered by this newspaper shows that the sensational message was carefully rehearsed prior to its premiere. The graphic further reveals that Mrs. Houdini, who professed only a slight acquaintance with Arthur Ford, the medium through whom the message was passed, has been a close friend of his for a year or more. 
The truth of the affair is that Rhea Jaro, a graphic reporter, prepared her story 24 hours before the seance was held. Mrs. Jower held up her information pending an opportunity to get all of the facts in connection with the hoax rather than publish a premature and inconclusive story. They went on to claim that not only did Best give Ford the code, but it was in order to promote some sort of upcoming lecture tour that she and Ford were to do together. Talk about the wheels coming off the cart. Best quickly sent off a letter to columnist Walter Winchell, which read, This letter is not for publicity. I do not need publicity. I want to let Houdini's old friends know that I did not betray his trust. I'm writing this personally because I wish to tell you emphatically that I was no party to any fraud. Now, regarding the seance, for two years I have been praying to receive the message from my husband. For two years, every day, I have received messages from all parts of the world. Had I wanted a publicity stunt, I could, well, I could no doubt have chosen any of these sensational messages. When I repudiated these messages, no one said a word, excepting the writers who said that I did not have the nerve to admit the truth. When the real message, the, the message that Houdini and I had agreed upon came to me, I accepted it as the truth. I was greeted with jeers. Why? Those who denounced the truth as a fraud claimed that I had given Mr. Ford the message. If Mr. Ford said that I gave it to him, he's a liar. Mr. Ford has stoutly denied saying this ugly thing. And knowing the reporter as well as I do, I prefer to believe Mr. Ford. Others say the message has been common property and known to them for some time. Why do they tell me this now? When they knew my heart was hungry for the true words from my husband, the many stories told to me, I have no way to tell the, the, whole, the, the world the truth or the untruth, for I have no paper at my beck and call. Everyone has a different opinion of how the message was obtained. With all these different tales, I would not even argue. However, when anyone accuses me of giving the words that my husband and I labored so long to convince ourselves of the truth of communication, then I will fight and fight until the breath leaves my body. If anyone claims I gave the code, I can only repeat, they lie. I should want to cheat myself. I don't need the publicity. I have no intention of going on the stage or as some paper said on some lecture tour, my husband made it possible for me to live in the greatest of comfort. I do not need to earn money. I have gotten the message that I have been waiting for from my husband. How, if not by spiritual aid, I do not know. And now, after I told the whole world that I received the true message, everyone seems to have known the code. Everyone but me. They left it to Mr. Ford to tell me and I am accused of giving him the words. Is it, it, It's all just so confusing. In conclusion, may I say that God and Houdini and I know that I did not betray his trust. For the rest of the world, I really ought not to care, but somehow I do. And therefore this letter, forgive its length. Sincerely, Beatrice Houdini.
Okay. So what was the truth? There Obviously, there was a lot of speculation. Folks like Joseph Dunninger and Daisy White get involved. Accusations are made about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle giving part of the information to Ford. Looking over everything, I think poor Bess was just ill at the time. And whether she remembered it or not, she had loose lips. In other words... She divulged information herself without realizing it. For example, on March 13th, 1927, before all this stuff came about, in the Brooklyn Eagle paper, Bess says any authentic message from Houdini must begin with the word forgive. And remember Rhea Jower. She claims that she met Ford secretly the night before the seance. She mentions to Ford that she was at a party with Ford and Bess Houdini a, a year prior. She tells him she has in her possession, she has the, the code in her possession a full day before the seance. She then hits him with a big question. Did you get this from the spirit of Houdini? And he replies, you know, Rhea, I could never have done that. She claims that Ford confesses he and Bess were planning a lecture tour. I'll be frank, I don't believe anything Rhea Jower says. I don't believe there was a meeting between her and Ford. I think it's all an effort to get even with Bess for canceling that original uh, article, The Life and Loves of Houdini. There's further conjecture that Daisy White gave the message to Arthur Ford. Again, I find this hard to believe. Uh, maybe... Uh, maybe she knew what the code was because the code was in the magic world. So it's, you know, it's possible that she told him what the code was, but I don't even know why that would make any sense for her to do. Um, so I don't even buy the Daisy White thing. I, and, and besides that, I don't, I definitely don't believe that Houdini would give Daisy White Rosabelle believe. Definitely not that. Again, if he gave her the code, maybe it was for some trick that they were working on. Who knows? Because I know that uh, he gave the code as a wedding gift to Alf Lasso. So, you know, it, it's not like the code was, was uh, super secretive. Plus, Bess and Daisy were friends. Now, they did have a small falling out um, after Bess found some love letters from Daisy to Harry, but... That got smoothed over rather quickly. What was Joe Dunninger's part in all this? Well, I honestly think he, he wanted to help Bess see that um, it, the message really couldn't have come from beyond. But I also think, frankly, he was using Houdini's name to get his name in the press. I think he loved to get his name in the press, and he, he found out pretty quickly that... Um, the Dunninger name by itself wasn't working, so if he attached to Houdini, boom, there it was. As for the code itself, that uh, that was written up by Harold Kellogg in the, the first Houdini biography. And as far as the word believe, apparently Best told a reporter for the New York World on January 9th, quote, I had no idea what combination of words Harry would use when he sent believe, it was a surprise. I do think Bess believed the message when it came through. 
But as it turns out, she had given away the message over time. Years later, she would claim she never received any word from her husband. But that was a much, much later uh, seance where she admitted that. And that seance is for another time. For now, I uh, hope you enjoyed this deeper look into the first Houdini seance. Please remember that the Magic Detective t-shirt is on sale the month of October. I dropped the price significantly just for this month. If you want a t-shirt or two, go to the website magichistorian.com and you can order the Magic Detective t-shirt over there. There's only a few days left of the sale, so please grab a shirt. They'll still be for sale after, but the price will go back to the regular, the regular price. So remember, magichistorian.com to get your t-shirt. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. I am your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Until next time, please be well and stay safe.